Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65 is where we're going to be. Um, and there are Bibles provided for you if you don't have one with you. Uh, on the center of each aisle, you can flag somebody down, they'll pass it over to you. Isaiah 65, kind of wrapping up a section in our series through Isaiah, the section where we've been talking about what God has done and promised to do, and now is doing, to solve the problem of our sin. This world is a mixed bag. It's full of beauty and joy and, and goodness, and it's full of pain and sorrow and tragedy and evil. That's the worldview that Isaiah is coming from, and I don't know when I've seen a week in the news that has borne that out more than this one, right? We've seen, we've seen human cruelty almost beyond imagination if we had not seen it so often before in these Boston bombings. We've seen human frailty, the subjection to the horrors of this world that we can't control in this explosion in Texas, which seems to have been just one of those things. We've seen human stupidity, almost unimaginable stupidity, in this Elvis impersonator who thought that he could knock off the president by lacing his letters with rice and poison. And that wouldn't have worked a hundred years ago, much less today, but he thought that was the way to, to handle his displeasure with whatever's going on in Washington. And on the other hand, so, so we've got all these, we got evidence that we're, we're, we're marked by cruelty and just by, by tragedy and by stupidity. Humans are a mess, Right? Then on the other hand, look, this week has been amazing. I mean, the, the weather, the, um, the opportunity to enjoy God's creation, the joy that we as humans get from flowers that are blooming this time of year, from friendship, from, from children. I mean, just in my own life, I've had, I've had meals with probably five or six friends this week. That's awesome. That's a great week. Uh, last week, spent a whole day introducing my son to the world of sports, right? Seeing live events out in the, out in the weather, enjoying God's creation. That was, that's a great day. Just a week ago, we celebrated the baptism of two of our own as a congregation. Yesterday, celebrated the wedding of two more members who are now married. And in the same news cycle that brought us the Boston bombings and the Texas plant explosion also brought word of the Google glasses. Anybody else read about the Google goggles? That's what I think they should have called them, Google Goggles. You guys, I'm getting total blank stares out there. You guys don't know about this. You should Google it when you get home. Uh, it's, 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 it's probably, it may, actually, it may actually fall on the evil side of my world is mixed with evil and good. Uh, that's debatable, but they're pretty remarkable. Point is, it, it's a mixed bag, right? All of us have experienced it even this week. And Scripture is, is unflinching. And acknowledging that this world is not what we wish it was, and yet it also has a beauty to it that comes from God. And it's at the meeting of those two things, the things that we mourn, the things that cause us grief, the things we wish weren't true, and the things that point us to beauty and hope and joy, that we find this angst that builds through the Scripture for a world in which all that holds us back and causes us pain is gone. And all that, that appears beautiful and good and right will, will conquer. A world that is marked only by stuff on the, the good side of the ledger and not by any of the stuff on the bad side of the ledger. And that's the world that Isaiah is promising to us. What we've been looking at in the past few weeks 
God's plan to, to heal what's going wrong in the world has been almost like a zoom lens. That's a great analogy I've heard of it. We've been, it's, it, we've been zooming in through Isaiah's passages on an individual. What is, what is going to happen to your life if you trust in him because of what God has planned? It's, it's, it's zoomed in on the promise that, that your past is no longer what defines you, that God has rewritten your past by changing who you are, by marrying you himself and promising you a secure future. The promise that he can be satisfying to you in a way nothing else can. That's the, that's the zoom lens view of what God is doing to fix the problem of sin. Today we want to zoom out. We're going to look at what God has planned for the whole world. What, what the new world will look like because God has saved individuals one at a time. It's a, a passage that introduces us to the new heavens and the new earth. If you've heard that language used in Christian circles before, our passage today is where it comes from in the first place. God's going to recreate this world. And when, when he does so, it won't be marred by any of the things that all of us have experienced. It will be defined by joy, goodness, and beauty, by rest, by peace. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at, at a sort of nuts and bolts approach to living in light of the coming of God's new kingdom. That's not where I want to go today. What I want to do by looking at Isaiah 65 is just try to give us a taste of what it is that God has planned, to to actually savor it so that we're driven to worship by it. That's our goal today, that we leave worshiping God in light of what he has planned, sensing it in a new way. And then we'll spend the the weeks to come unpacking what it looks like to live in light of the world that's coming. Now, What we have in front of us this morning is not so much a logical case where he moves from point one, and because this is true, point two, and because that's true, point three. But I think of it more like a slideshow. You know those old carousels? that They were real popular when I was a kid. You put your slides in them, and and, and it goes around in a circle as you do the little clicker, and you see the new new images, and build a, a, a picture of what a trip was like just by a series of images. And I think that's what this passage, how it breaks down. And so we're just going to go into these images one by one. They're not comprehensive. You can tell that the, that the writer is straining at language to describe something he can't even really imagine. And so he's latch, latching on to things that we have experienced to try to describe something we can't experience yet and can't even imagine yet. And he's just throwing everything he's got at it. And so we're just going to follow him. We're just going to go image by image and try to get a taste of what God has planned for this, for this world. If you found Isaiah 65, now, I'd ask that you would stand with me in honor of God's word as I read. I'm going to read from, uh, from verses 17 to 25. This is the word of the Lord. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. 
And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Here are the images. I think I want to tease out four images out of this passage for this new world that's coming, that we're doing our best to understand and look ahead to. It's, 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 the imagery is all driven by this change from a before picture and an after picture. I think we're, we're pointed to a shift from sorrow to gladness, from death to life, from futility to fruitfulness, and from hostility to peace. Those are the four images I want to tease out for us this morning. Beginning with sorrow to gladness. Now, I've, I've said that, that the way this author is coming at it is that he is, he's giving us things we have experienced as a way of trying to help us understand something we haven't experienced and, and can barely even imagine. And so it makes sense that he would start with sorrow. Because all of us have been there. The first few verses of the chapter point to a time when, when all God's people will be glad and rejoice, when there will no more be heard in his city the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. It is as basic as any other thing we know as humans to experience sorrow and distress. We know it from the simple disappointment over our own failure, over unmet expectations, to absolute despair, sometimes even life-ending despair that comes from broken relationships or lost loved ones or crushed dreams. We know regret over things that we have done that we can't take back. And we know the pain that comes from things that are done to us And then there's just the regular distress over things that threaten us that we can't control. I mean, all of us are subject to forces in this world that are past our power and that could hurt us. And so we fear. We know fear. And in place of weeping and distress, what we're told is that in God's new world, there will be gladness and rejoicing forever. Forever. Now, we know what gladness and rejoicing feel like. That we can imagine. But rejoicing forever goes beyond anything I can taste. I mean, I, I'm, I'm often, I don't know about always, but often a glass half-empty sort of guy. Even when I'm tasting a thing that I enjoy, I'm thinking about when it's going to be over. Right? I'm, I'm the guy who on the first day of the vacation, in the midst of the beauty of the beach or wherever we are is thinking about the fact that we've only got a couple days left you know before we got to go back back to the world as it is i think some of the greatest gladness and rejoicing i've experienced yet has come with the birth of my kids but you know even that if i'm honest i mean it's 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 quickly tempered right by the sleepless nights by all the, the work the hardship that comes with parenting young kids maybe our best look at what this sort of pure 
unblemished rejoicing will look like is the joy of children, of young children. It, their joy just sometimes when they're, when they're taken up with something they really want to do and they hear they're about to get to do it, they're just overcome by it. They're just completely animated by this joy and excitement. It is absolute in that moment, and it is unblemished by any fear of the future. They are completely resting in the provision of their parents for them. They aren't worried about what's going to happen. They are surrounded by loving relationships. They have no pain in the sense that they will come to know. And so in those moments, they are just completely dominated by joy and gladness. They don't last, but those moments are real and they're pure. And I think they are a little bit of a taste of the world to come, the one that's promised here, where we'll know a joy and gladness that is untainted by the sorrows and the fears that come so quickly in this life. And it's hard to imagine, but the promise is clear. God is creating a new world. He's creating a new Jerusalem. And He is creating it to be a joy. I love that language. Did you notice that when we read it? Verse 18. Be glad and rejoice forever, he says, in that which I create, because here's what I'm creating. I am creating Jerusalem to be a joy. The whole point of this new world is to fill up God's people with rejoicing, with joy. That's what's driving him and animating him. And then the next verse goes on to say, I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and I will be glad in my people. What we're seeing is this circle, this reinforcing circle where God makes his people happy, and then they make him happy, and he makes his people happy, and they make him happy, and it just goes on like that for all of eternity. It's something of what the Trinity, I think, experiences in its, in its life. Uh, uh, it's, it's one of the most impenetrable mysteries of Christian teaching is what the Trinity is like, but one of the best ways of imagining what it's like for God, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit to relate to one another is this cycle of joy where they all they ju- where, whereby the, each of them just loves the other one fully and purely and their joy just bounces back and forth between them and, and goes on like that for eternity. And we get a taste of that in this new Jerusalem. And in it there will be no weeping. So, here's the payoff for today. The takeaway here is that you should not waste your sorrow. Don't waste your sorrow. If you're grieving today, here's, here's what I mean. For example, don't let yourself believe that your pain makes you different, right? Your pain does not define you, make you different from everybody else. It makes you human. Your pain shows that you are living in this world as it is. But if you'll trust Jesus, you can claim the promise that he has carried your sorrows and that he is on the way to a world where the pain you know now will have no place. So, knowing that your pain doesn't define you, but knowing that it's still real in your life, if you claim the promise that Jesus has redefined who you are, but you're still having to to feel it, you still live in this world of sorrow, what do you do with that? How do you process it? And I think what this picture of the new world that's coming does is point us, towards, point us away from, from trying to pretend like our pain isn't real and towards using our pain as a way to hope for the future even more. Because it's only against the backdrop of the sorrow and the pain that, that is in this life that the promise of a world without, without any weeping actually makes sense. It makes no sense 
if the, if the, the after that we're, that's pictured for us here doesn't make any sense apart from a before. And you won't be able to hunger for the world God is creating for you unless you fully engage in and process the pain you have now as a pointer to a world in which it won't have any place. We're told, in fact, that, that the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. I think what that means, with regard to your pain, your weeping and distress now, I think what that means is that, I actually read a good analogy for it. Uh, in, in St. Augustine this week, I was reading in, his, in one of his most uh, famous books called The City of God. Part of it is about heaven. The end of it points us towards heaven. And about the fact that, that heaven, the new world, the new heavens, the new earth that this passage is talking about, says that we're not going to remember things about our former life. And Augustine wants to understand what that's about because, in a sense, we should remember. In a, in a sense, it says we won't remember. And he, says, he says, you know, there's, there's two kinds of knowledge, really. There's knowledge in your head, sort of intellectual knowledge, and then there's knowledge of experience. There's the felt or tasted knowledge. And... The point here is that the taste or the experience of pain will be gone forever. What, here's an example. There's a difference between knowing, for example, that, that, um, that honey is sweet because somebody that you trust tells you that it's sweet. This is a, a Jonathan Edwards example. He's great at analogies. There's a difference between knowing that honey is sweet because somebody that you trust tells you that it's sweet because you read about it in a book and you know basically what sweetness is and you have no reason to doubt it. So you, you know that that honey is sweet. But then you put honey in your mouth and you know that honey is sweet. It's a different kind of knowledge, right? It's a knowledge of experience. Now, in knowing things, it's possible to know something in one way and not in another. I know that war is horrible. I've never tasted the horrors of war. So, in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be possible to know something in one way and not know it in the other. To know that this world we've lived through was defined by pain. And yet not to taste that pain anymore. Not to feel it. Not to sense it. What Augustine says, and what I think is true about this passage we're describing now, is that in this world where there's not going to be any more weeping or distress, we will remember the fact of our distress in this world because that is how we will worship God for for ridding the world of all of that kind of experience. But we won't taste it anymore. It won't weigh us down like it has. It won't define our lives as it has. Our lives will now be free of it once and for all. And the only memory we have of it will be the kind of memory that drives us to worship God for getting rid of it once and for all. So I want you to start that process now by taking your pain, not wasting it, but using it to, to fuel your hope for the world that Isaiah 65 introduces us to. Now, that's image number one. Number two... Is an, is an image of passing from death to life. Death is just as basic to human experience as pain, right? It's something that every human experiences. It's coming for everybody. And here is the promise that there will be no more death. Now, there, there's a phrase in this passage that, that makes it sound as if death will be here. I mean, the first time I read it, that's the way I thought of it. Uh, verse, verse 20 is the, is the key verse here. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. And so initially I'm caught up on that. It makes me stumble a bit. 
Because one of the passages we've already looked at in Isaiah, uh, back in chapter 25, talked about the new world God was going to make and said that one of the things that defines it is that God is going to swallow up death once and for all. That on his holy mountain, the same word that's used at the end of this passage for the new world God is creating. My holy mountain, there's not going to be any more death. So what does this phrase mean that talks about people dying at 100? That's not really any longer than anybody lives now. I think here's the best way to understand it. This is one of the commentators that I read this week. I think it just opened my eyes to, to the, the, the subtle meaning that's lost on us a little bit in the English translation. That really, what he's making is a, is, is a point that if you were to die at 100 years old, you'd be considered a young man. Isn't it strange that the phrase is, a young man, who die, a young man will die at 100 years old? That, that doesn't really make much sense anyway, if you, if you just take it straight up. Actually, what it's trying to say is that if you were to die at 100, which is like the oldest you can imagine being in this life, you'd still be a young guy. The point is that lives are just going to go on and on and on in this new world. The point is that there's no more death in this new world. Now, in our experience, if we're thinking about things clearly, death defines life. Apart from Jesus... Just viewed in light of what, what we experience and, and what every human has, has gone through, death really does define our lives in a way. Because it, what it does is, is limits how valuable anything we accomplish can become. Right? How valuable is it if ultimately you're just going to die and not be able to enjoy it anymore? It limits anything we're known for. I mean, we, we, we live for reputation, to make a mark, and yet we're all going to be forgotten limits anything we can earn. We live for money, to establish ourselves, for security. But you die and you can't take it with you. But here, our passage locks in on one other aspect of death. These other things I've mentioned are things we've talked about for the past two or three weeks. But here, here's something else that's haunting and horrifying about death. The passage drives us to. It tells us, it reminds us the fact that death isn't just a challenge to meaning and to our purpose as humans, but death is unpredictable. It's senseless. It's even ruthless in its power. We're pointed to the infant who lives but a few days and the old man who doesn't fill out his days. The idea is of death coming for you at a time when you couldn't have predicted, at a time that just seems random and pointless. I mean, it, it would be bad enough. Death would be bad enough if it just happened on a routine schedule. If you just knew, you know, you had 90 years, and at 90, you're done. That would be bad enough. I mean, all the stuff we've been saying about death, limiting what we can accomplish in life, would still be true. But, but almost like salt in the wounds, death doesn't come for us on a schedule. It just happens. It comes out of nowhere. Babies are born only to live a matter of hours or weeks and live lives that are full of pain. College students fall asleep at the wheel driving home for summer break. Pedestrians get hit by drunk drivers just this week. An eight-year-old boy killed out of nowhere while enjoying a marathon with his parents. Why? I, I don't know why. The text doesn't tell us why. But what it does tell us is this. No more. And here's the takeaway. 
don't waste your death. So don't waste your sorrow. Use it as a way of, of hungering for and even getting a little taste of what the new world is going to be like. Don't waste your death. Christian perspective on death is twofold. On one hand, it tells us it's coming, right? It doesn't flinch in that. It says, think on it. Because thinking on your death puts everything else in perspective. And it can keep you from giving the kind of overwhelming attention that we tend to give to just trivial things, right? Does it really matter who notices your shoes if you're just going to die anyway? All right, now I'm going to step on my own toes. Does it really matter that the University of Alabama has won three out of four national titles (laughs) given the fact that I'm just going to die anyway? Think on death because it puts things in perspective. Read Ecclesiastes. It's all about this. If you're going to die, then nothing matters. That's what Ecclesiastes says, except if God is true. There's a second side of the Christian perspective on death, though. one One is think on it because it puts everything else in perspective. Don't waste your death. But another side to it is think on it because a right view of death makes you savor the sweetness of Jesus. And what he offers to you. Because there is no sweetness to Jesus if triumph over death is not lying in wait for all of us because of what he's accomplished. What makes Jesus matter to us is that he has conquered the enemy that no one else could conquer. That he has risen, showing that his death perfectly wiped clean the sin that gave death its power and that through faith in him because we're joined to him we can live too and it's only through thinking on our death through fearing it in a way that we come to taste the sweetness of a world in which death has no place has no power and never will again that's the world jesus makes possible for us it's it's the world that isaiah 65 promises to us but it's not a world we can taste or hunger for unless we think seriously about our own death. So don't waste it. Now, here's image number three. The next couple of verses, starting in verse 21. We've seen from, from sorrow to gladness, from death to life, this new world will also have another before and after side to it. From futility to fruitfulness. Now, now this image takes a little bit more explanation, but I, I still think it resonates clearly with us, with what we experience in this world. Uh, it speaks of the end of futility and the enjoyment of our work and what our work produces. Now, I'm going to walk you through these images because, like I said, I don't think it's quite as clear as the ones that we've seen before, but it's still there. And the image is of someone building a house and actually getting to live in it. Someone planting a crop and actually getting to enjoy it, the fruit of it. The contrast is to building a house that somebody else takes or raising a crop that someone else gets to enjoy. I think, that, I think that imagery makes most immediate sense if we were living in a culture like this one where war could just happen like these tribal cultures you just never knew when somebody was going to come at you. So war could just happen. And you could, you could be sitting pretty with a good harvest of, of your crops in the storehouse and then the next day wiped out because somebody decided they wanted to come take it. It made more sense to them, I think, but I think the point is still, still made well for us that the things we do with our time and our energy, we will actually get to enjoy and to enjoy fully. And, and here's why I think it makes so much sense. I think, what, I think our relationship to work in this life 
is, is really a mixed bag. I mean, one of, the, one of the remarkable things about this new creation imagery is that it pictures us still working. Right? This isn't just like a beautiful retirement where we go kick up our feet on the beach for all of eternity. And in fact, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, that sounds kind of miserable. To just sit around for all of eternity? It sounds, it sounds really boring to me. I think, what, I think what we're made for is to work. That's the passages in Genesis that, that talk about part of what it is to be in the image of God is to do things, to create things like God has, to cultivate things like God cultivates, to bring order to things that didn't have order. It's one of the ways we give a picture of what God is like as his image. And so work is not going away. The difference is that it's actually going to deliver for us. It is going to be meaningful and beautiful and fruitful in a way that it hasn't been in this life. So, so we've got these two poles. From the Bible's perspective, work is not a bad thing. It's not a necessary evil that you survive during the week so you can hang out on the weekend and take a vacation a couple times a year. It is who you were made to be, in a sense. But the other part, the other pole, so if that's one pole, the goodness of work, the other pole is that just like all other good things in our lives, we tend to make an idol out of work. We tend to, we tend to define ourselves by our work. And the work that we do just can't bear that kind of weight. It can't deliver. It can't make us happy. It can't make us meaningful in the way that we turn to it for. Isn't our work what we use to, to, to compare ourselves to others for good or ill? Being better at or worse than somebody else at what we do? Because we elevate it beyond the level it should go, it always lets us down. Sometimes it's because there's forces outside of our control that, that steal away potential fruit, just like this passage points us to. I mean, I think a modern example would be a, a guy who's really faithful and lives a moderate lifestyle in, in his, in his uh, young adulthood, saving up for retirement only to get cancer and die at 45. His storehouse was full, now it's empty. His work was futile. I think about even 2008. Remember when the, when the market went down so quickly? Wealth, just gone. In this day and age, it's, it doesn't look like full storehouses to be sitting pretty. It's images or digits on a computer screen somewhere. And those, those just went away. It disappeared. The futility of living for that came clear. Sometimes it's because, sometimes our work doesn't deliver because it's not good enough at least not to match our hopes. We know what it is to have work that just isn't good enough. Not good enough to get the record deal. Not good enough to get the grant we applied for. Not good enough to get the promotion, the award. And what would, what would good enough work even look like if we're not going to live long and enjoy the work of our hands like this passage promises us? If death is coming, what is good enough? Sometimes our work doesn't deliver because it's just ceaseless. It's just never done. And, and so much of what we have to do is cyclical, just on a loop. This is one of the things my wife and I joke about. She was in the business world for several years before we had kids, and now she stays at home with our boys. And In the business world, she's really efficient, a go-getter, to-do list kind of person. She's perfect for the job that she had. But very few of the tasks that, she, that fill her days now are subject to that kind of approach, Right? And so what we laugh about is the fact that you, know, you, you finish the laundry one day and by the time you get the basket back to its closet in the bathroom, there's more laundry in it, right? Or you, you fix a delicious meal and then it's eaten and it's gone. And you don't build on top of that, you do it again. And it's, it's ceaseless. And I think a lot of our work is that way. I think of you guys who are in the medical 
feel, especially it must feel like this, that these patients just keep coming. And, you know, you, have, you may have one amazing surgery where you, where you get this guy fixed, but tomorrow there's somebody else on your table, and it might not go as well. Or, or some, of you who are, who, some of you may actually have some patients that you see on a regular basis. I could see that being really frustrating because these people just aren't getting better. Maybe they're not taking your, your advice, but year after year you see them. It's never over. You don't build on anything or to anything. For whatever reason, our work just isn't as fruitful as we long for it to be. And the point, I think, of verses 21 to 23 is that we will no longer labor in vain. We will work, but we will see the fruit of our hands. And in a way that ultimately glorifies God, we will be satisfied with it. The point is that we were made for work. We love it. We need it. But we end up loving it too much. And that will not be true in the new world. There's a new creation that's coming where God's plan for us is going to come to fruition. And we're going to taste and enjoy the fruit of our work. We will live long to enjoy the work of our hands. That's a beautiful image. It's unimaginable, but it's beautiful. Can you imagine even... I can't. I mean, I've already said it's unimaginable, but just think about it. Try to imagine. <laughs> Try to imagine working without the fear of failure, without that fear hanging over your head, working without the pressure of a deadline. I just imagine how much fun it would be to try to prepare a sermon if Sunday never came around. <laughs> if you just had time to do it and do it right without the pressure of a deadline, without Knowledge that your work is just going to become obsolete. If you can imagine what it would be like to work without those conditions, you get a little taste of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to mean for all of God's people. And here's the last image. From hostility to peace. From hostility to peace. In verses 24 and 25, we get two images that I think go, go right together, hand in hand. One of them... It's, it refers to harmony with God, between us and God, and the other one to harmony within the creation, using, using non-humans, but still making the same point, that in this world there's just going to be peace and harmony. There's no more wolves trying to eat lambs, right? The lion's going to eat straw. His nature's going to be changed so that there's peace. And the serpent, who in the Bible is an image of evil and all of its power, is going to eat dust. He's done. He's stomped in the dust imagery about our peace with God and about our peace with each other. That's verses 24 and 25. Now we've, we've already talked a lot in our series about peace with God as what's coming for us, what's, what's been possible because the servant in, in chapter 53, bearing our iniquities, by his stripes we are healed. And the, the language there is that by his chastisement, on him was this chastisement laid, this punishment that has brought us peace. We've talked about the different layers to this peace already. That, that one way of understanding sin is, is a kind of treason. That we have this rightful Lord who's over everything. He's made us. He, he has the right to command us. And yet we resist his rule. We rebel against him. We are insurgents or guerrilla warriors against his rule. That's one of the images the Bible uses. And that, 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 that now has been laid to rest. Our arms have been laid down. And, the, and we can do that without fear because the servant has borne the punishment that our treason requires what it's made possible, we've said, is this new world where, where we don't have to fear what we've done, but we can trust and rest in God's provision for us. What makes us peaceful is the fact that God is our God and we are his people. That he, the creator of all that is, is for us. 
and is going to perfectly provide for every need. Now, that's the background to the verse 24. Verse 24 takes us to a new layer or a new angle on what this peace that the servant has made possible will bring to us in this new world. It has to do with harmony, with oneness with God. I think it sounds a lot like the Bible's language for marriage, which is used so often to picture God's relationship to his people. The images of knowing and responding before we've even asked. The images of God being so at one with us. A relationship so perfectly healed that we are just telepathically connected almost. It's really hard to imagine. It's hard to put words to this connection. It says, before they even call, I'll answer. I'm there already. I know what they need, what they want, and I'm for them. I think, I think we see this very, very faintly described in marriage as a marriage grows. You do become more aware of your partner, more sensitive to their needs. Less, it's less necessary to be told. That's the goal anyway, that you, you're just sort of so at one that you know each other and feel and sense each other intuitively. Now, unfortunately, after 10 years of marriage, we've seen some growth, but, but I'm still pretty thick-headed. So Lindsay went on a trip about a month or so ago. And, you know, I kept the house in general good repair. I kept it picked up. But there was laundry in the basket when she got home. The floors had not been swept or vacuumed. And I should have known that it would have been meaningful to her to come home to a house that was just as she would have left it. But I didn't even think about it until she came home. It didn't even cross my mind. I, I'm being open and vulnerable with you guys. You can see how bad of a husband I am, right? didn't even cross my mind. That's after 10 years of marriage. And then even if it does cross your mind, you know, it's a struggle to act on it, right? So, so we kind of have, we, we joke about with diapers around our house, right? The, the one who smells it has to change it, right? So it's almost like a, a contest not to smell the feces before the other one, right? Uh, not seriously, but that, that kind of comes into my mind. I'm being honest. Now imagine, now imagine a relationship as marriage is meant to be that isn't held back by any of the limitations of either human insensitivity or human selfishness. Now imagine the God who created you and holds all the powers of the universe in his hand. The God at whom is, to whom nothing is impossible and at whose disposal is absolutely everything. And now imagine this God is so perfectly attuned to your interests that he is giving himself over to meeting your needs before you even know you have them. And that's the image of peace that will define this new world God has created. Can you taste that? At least a little bit, how sweet that would be? That's coming for you if you'll trust him. And when we trust God to provide for us in this way, it changes how we relate to each other. Because when you don't have to worry about your needs, because they're perfectly met by the God who is in a perfect position to meet them, then we don't have to be envious of each other. Of each other. We don't have to be jealous. We don't have to be greedy. We don't have to fight for what's ours. We don't have to work angles to get a leg up on the other people who might be after the same things we're after. When there's peace with God, there is no hostility among those he has made. The imagery is of animals, but I think we're meant to see that as a picture of, of a broader peace. That the, the prey and its predator will be buddies. 
that the serpent who is the source of all distrust in God will be crushed. Think back to Genesis, the first mention of the serpent. First time he comes on the scene, Genesis chapter 3, what he's doing is trying to tell Adam and Eve they can't trust God. He says, did God really say that? Do you think God would really do that to you? Shouldn't you take what you can get? Take that fruit, become what you want to be, not what God has called you to be. The serpent stands for everything that undermines trust in God and then leads to strife in marriage. Adam and Eve bears this out to murder Cain. Think of the Cain and Abel story. Think of the hostility that's unleashed after Adam and Eve failed to trust in God's word. And the picture here is of an Eden restored where everyone trusts in God because he is there for us and therefore have no need to be at each other's throats. We're not competitors. We are brothers and sisters. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine not even fearing what might be done to you physically or emotionally? Because in God's holy mountain, there will be no hurt, no one to destroy. Can you imagine never being guilty of hurting others? Never desiring their downfall? Never feeling that creeping sense of envy or jealousy? Never saying words of gossip that you can't take back? That's the world that's coming a world of peace where there was hostility. And it's possible, even more, it is inevitable because the servant has risen. Jesus is alive, even though he was dead. And because he's alive, we have all the proof we need that this world that he came to inaugurate is coming for us if we will trust in it. So worship him and trust the creator of the new heavens and the new earth. Father, this is a world we can't even imagine. Not really. We can try. These images help us. But it, it is so far outside of our experience, it boggles the mind. And so all we've got is hearts that want these things to be true. All we've got are not resources to bring about this world, but hearts that wait for it that latch on to it in faith, that call out for it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We are waiting for you. Come and redeem your people. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.